Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you too. Acts chapter 9. We'll stand and read verses 19 through 31. This morning's message is entitled, De-Emphasizing Miracles. If you would please stand, we'll begin at verse 19 to the end of the chapter. I said verse 19. That is not right. It's verse 31, 32. There we go. Do I hear 33? (laughs) Verse 33. Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus, the Christ, heals you. Arise, make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him, And turned to the Lord. At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples had heard that Peter was there, They sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. Many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a Tanner. Please be seated. The Bible, our Bible, gives us so much to think about. Think about God, things to think about ourselves, others, life in general, subjects with facts that we would otherwise avoid or altogether miss. When you come to the scripture, these things are presented to us and they force us to think. That's the goal. In this section that we have before us this morning, we read of God performing these two miracles one of the man in bed and the other of the woman that was dead. What about us today in these miracles? We read them in the scripture and they seem to be routine. They certainly were not. If you do the math, you find out they're very, very rare. But nonetheless, they took place. We who believe the Bible have no difficulty with miracles, with believing that they exist. The difficulty that we have is in their absence. We want them to happen more often, and they do not. Would would Christ rather we impress him with obedience or with miracles? If you serve Jesus Christ, what do you think would be most impressive to him? That uh, you could perform signs and wonders, or you could... Obey the gospel even without the signs and wonders based on the truth. Going back to that reading the Bible, being forced to think about things concerning God and ourselves and others and mankind. Forced to think about these things and make a decision. And based on that, acting on it, obeying the Lord, seeking him, hungering and thirsting for him, asking, seeking and knocking And still following him, even if the door does not open the way you had thought it would. That is faith, that is perseverance. Jesus said this, speaking about impressing him. He says, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Martin Luther made a good comment. I'm not 
too wild about much of what the reformers did, although there was a remarkable age and what they, what they went through. It was fantastic, actually. Uh, much theology still had to be worked out with them. Remember, most of them were Roman Catholics. They had come out of that. They had protested Roman Catholic dogma and doctrine. And Luther, a tough man in himself, he says, it is not Christ walking on the sea, but his ordinary walk that we are called on to imitate. That's true. It's, I'm not looking to walk on the water as much as I am looking to walk like Christ, to be like Christ. That is, that is my greatest, biggest request of God, to be Christ-like more than anything else. And then there are those that scoff at the Bible's miracles because they're, they're not experiencing them. And this group has to experience something before they believe it. It's quite irrational, but it happens nonetheless. And they think it's very rational. These uh, miracles that the Bible speaks of, they, they either think they don't, uh, did not happen, or uh, there's another group that will come along and within Christianity and suggest that, well, they don't happen because the church is so disobedient and so faithless. And I don't agree with that at all. I think that Elijah was a man of like passions, and so are we. It's the same people, the same desire for the Lord. We want to see these miracles performed in our life, as they were in the biblical uh, pages, off the com coming off the pages of the Scripture. But it misses the point if we are thinking that we should be performing signs and wonders like the apostles. Hebrews 10, verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And of course, when the apostle says, uh, we walk by faith, we walk by faith. That's all he needed to say. He said more, but that, 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 that alone is so loaded with information. We walk by faith. Now, that Old Testament prophet, Habakkuk, who really gave the New Testament that phrase, the just shall live by faith. And incidentally, it shows up three times in the New Testament, all at the hand of Paul. Well, how does Habakkuk end his prophecy? Because he starts off not liking what God was doing. But he's subject to it. He, he, he submits to it. He submits to whatever God wants to do. And he closes out his prophecy with this. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in Yahweh. I will joy in the God of my salvation. He's saying we can starve to death. I'm still going to believe in the Lord. It's quite profound, but it has happened in history. Christians have suffered and died trusting the Lord. And so uh, we don't need miracles. We need faith. That is what we need. Remember, we're de-emphasizing miracles because Christ de-emphasized them. And we have to settle this in our thinking or else we'll be very confused. Faith, grace, and obedience is now the emphasized work of the Holy Spirit in believers. Shallow mankind does not want to hear this. Even some churchgoers sneer at the thought of preaching truth as outranking miracles. And that's too bad. And so they remain confused to the point of being dishonest because the fact is miracles are not prevalent. They happen. Of course, salvation is a miracle all by itself. I'm just going to leave that one on the side for now. And there's a reason for all of this. The times of the apostles was the age of the miracles, as it was in the days of Elijah and Elisha, as it was in the days of Moses and Joshua. And when Joshua uh, takes over, he's performing miracles. They're happening, but they start to, to, to uh, de-emphasize. And today, because of the work of the apostles, the signs and wonders that they did, the insight that they have given us, we are supposed to be equipped for the preaching of Jesus Christ, for saving souls. 
Jesus gave the special beatitude to Christianity. He gave a special beatitude to the world. He gave a special beatitude to me and you as individuals, all bundled into one sentence. Blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. He de-emphasized the miracle. And he emphasized faith, trusting in God no matter what. Christ, until the Great Tribulation period, de-emphasizes miracles on the basis of faith. Now, when the Great Tribulation comes, they will again be emphasized. Do we understand this? Like it or not, you can't, I don't know how you can honestly say, oh, that's not true. <clears throat> you can't walk on water, nor do you know anyone who can, other than the Christ. Miracles were given to the apostles as a helpmate to the word of God. And this is what Jesus said would happen. Mark's gospel, chapter 16, verse 20, the gospel of Mark closes with this. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Well, that was the fledgling church when it was just being born, when it needed to be sort of uh, endowed with a, a, a rich power that um, we don't use so much today because they did not have the New Testament. They were writing it. They were living it. We have the New Testament. We have so much New Testament that people leave expensive Bibles in the church and never come back for them. They, have, they just go to get another one. They're just all over the place. But it wasn't the case in these days. So insisting on miracles. I'll get to the text eventually, but this has everything to do. There's everything to do with P Peter raising a paralytic from the bed and raising a dead woman up. And we look at this and we say, where are these miracles for us? Well, I'm trying to explain why they have been de-emphasized. Christ uses them for his purposes, not to satisfy our thirst for them or our curiosities, whatever else, our plight. So insisting on miracles, even, even having an unchecked craving for them, puts us out of line with God's present methods. I know when you really want God to do something, you want him to really do it. John's Gospel, chapter 4, Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. That was not a compliment. It was a criticism. It was a rebuke. It was an alert. It is a teaching. It is something that we are supposed to be equipped with for the work of ministry, for the edification of the body of Christ. These words are not preserved just so that we could read them and apply them to other lives. They're for us. Today is the day of salvation, the miracle of salvation by truth from the Scripture. And I, I fear a lot of Christians just don't want to hear any of this. Salvation based solely on the word of God. That is the dominant method of the church. Luke's gospel, chapter 16. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. This is Abraham. Abraham is saying, and Jesus is the one telling us this. It's the, it's the scriptures. It's the scriptures. That's where it gets done. You can have the miracles and no scripture and you still go to hell. May we stop being surprised as Christians that preaching the word supersedes performing wonders. That's, it's so important that we understand how valuable we are to the Holy Spirit because we're the ones that he fills and uses and abides with to engage the loss. You may scoff. You may dislike it. You may even be offended by what I'm saying. But it is true. And it is faithful. Ephesians chapter 6. Paul sums up his letter with these words. Peace to the brethren. And love with faith. Not with miracles. Love with faith. From God the Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, recognizing this great reduction of miracles, it is a fact 
It's not faithlessness at all. It's faithfulness to look at the realities before them and work within the confines of those realities. And may we not blame ourselves for God using us through the word and not miracles. Boy, it would be so nice if I could just do this and -and so-and-so would come to Christ. Of course it would be, but that's not how it's going to happen most times. And so now with that background to miracles, so that we don't feel left out, but we'd rather feel summoned, summoned to the throne of God to perform as the apostles, but without the signs and wonders, except the sign and wonder of truth and fact from the scripture. In verse 32, now it came to pass as Peter went through, a, through all the parts of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwell in Lydda. Well, the Jerusalem Christians were chased up to this region at the persecution that started with Stephen. Acts chapter 11 again. Now, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, uh, Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but Jews only. Well, Philip also, in chapter 8 we read, Philip was found in Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. So if you track, if you look on a map, and you look at the places that the Christians were scattered to, to the north and to the to the west of Israel, and then you track from Azotus to Caesarea, you find Philip went right through Lydda. He's going right on that track. So there's a harmony taking place between what Peter is now going to do and what the uh, other Christians and what Philip had done uh, ahead of him. Not a lack of trust. Peter valued his contribution to Christianity because he understood the investment Christ made in his life. And you may say things like, well, it's not me, it's the Lord. Well, we all know that. But do you understand that Christ has invested in you and now it is yours to work out, to implement? There's an action required. So we have servants in this church that have been serving for years, especially some of the leaders. And God has invested in them. They've learned things from serving so long. And it's not easy to replace them with a rookie and expect to still get the same quality of results. And so knowing that God has invested in you is is meaningful. Peter knew that God invested in him. He didn't say say in Jerusalem, ringing his finger, well, I can't be used. You know, I denied the Lord one time. It was really a horrible sin. And, oh, why would God use me? No, Peter's in action. No matter what. He has the truth. He's going to put it to use. And we see we see the results. Paul wrote, he said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. It's a harmony. It's a, you're sort of a tag team kind of thing for you wrestling fans. <laughs> All right. Coming back to this. That, <laughs> that he also came down to the saints who dwell in Lydda. Well, this Lydda is a difficult word to pronounce in English, actually. Um, <laughs> it, it just doesn't flow off the tongue. However, it's a vill- village in the plain of Sharon. And here we see, again, the New Testament classifying all Christians as saints. There is no super class of Christian. There is no elite team of Christians. Even those who are assigned to be apostles, uh, evangelists, prophets, and teachers, that's their calling, that's their work, but they do not belong to a super class. And they have their role, and those that aren't in their position have their role to perform also. And it is uh, troubling when you find folks that think that, you know, they're, the, you know, I'm a Messianic Jew. Some of them, not all of them, say that as though they have a higher classification that they're closer to the cross. And I just wish they would say, I'm a Christian, and, and leave all that other stuff out. I'm sure it may have its meaning used somewhere, but overall, we're just all Christians together. Isn't that enough? Why would we need more? Uh, verse nine, uh, 33, chapter 9 of Acts. There he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. Now, that's a Greek name, and he's probably a Hellenistic Jew. We've covered that already in sessions past. 
There's no reason to doubt that he was a believer. But if you said, well, there's no evidence that he was a believer, um, I would say to you, then, how come it's not mentioned when he is healed uh, that, uh, you know, you, you don't leave something like that out. I believe he was one of the believers in Jesus Christ and certainly the way Peter will handle him. Telling us here that he was bedridden eight years. You look at that and you say, ah, man, it's a long time to be dependent on everybody else for life. Uh, it's just to have the humbling experience, the, the misery that, that goes along with that. Metaphorically, uh, we might find ourselves bedridden for a long period of time because of problems in our life through no fault of our own. The Bible doesn't beat him up and say he was bedridden because he was lazy or something like that. It just says this, is what, this was his condition. And uh, nor should we beat ourselves up unless, unless we're guilty. And then if we're guilty, there's a way uh, to, to address that also without remaining or having the guilt remain on us. A lot of folks have a hard time getting, getting past the guilt because, you know, sin is a serious thing, leaves a heavy scar. But there should be healing nonetheless by faith. Imagine if Paul said, I, I, I can't answer this calling to be an apostle and go to the Gentiles I was very much part of Stephen's death. I'm just too guilty. Uh, well, you know, this, these things are there for us who are guilty to look back at our guilt and say, well, I've given it to Jesus Christ, and he's big enough to handle it, and I believe it, and then move forward in harmony with Christ. Well, verse 34, And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise, make your bed. Then he arose immediately. <laughs> Peter makes this fact very clear before he takes another step. Jesus Christ heals you. There's no doubt that I don't have a special touch. It's not Peter the Apostle. It is Jesus Christ. And Now, it would be silly to suggest that any created being has this particular power. Christ crucified, dead, buried, risen, alive, and loved Jesus is Lord. From heaven, he is still healing people. He is still functioning. It is exclusive to him. He could not say, uh, Aeneas, Michael the archangel heals you. Mary heals you. That would be blasphemous to say such a thing. This belongs to God. You have to be divine to... Uh, for, to qualify to be the healer, the great physician. And the only way Peter could know that this man was going to be healed before he was healed, the only way that he could guarantee it is if he had the gift of faith. Now, this gift of faith isn't permanent. It is explosive. It is, you know, for, for the moment. It is activated for the moment. However, it is up to us to remain ready to receive the gift because we can certainly uh, eliminate, eliminate ourselves, be bypassed, and God uses somebody else in our place. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. Now, that person may give a wise saying, but next time have nothing to say because the Spirit's not giving them anything. To another, the word of knowledge. Through the same Spirit. Again, the word of knowledge that is the, uh, something God gives that we don't deserve. Ergo, it is a gift. And God is telling us something that we otherwise could not possibly have known without him telling us. When Peter said, how is it that you lie to the Holy Spirit? Well, how did you know, Peter? Well, God told me. Well, it continues, Paul does. He says, to another, faith by the same Spirit. Now, this isn't saving faith. This is trusting faith for the moment. This is that ability to know what God is going to do because God has shared it. And we're seeing it in action when he says, Jesus heals you, but he's still in the bed. You can't do that. Let's see you try. Then you, you, and the person stays in bed. Now you're a false prophet. Unless, unless you know God has spoken to you and, and gave this to you at that moment. And then Paul says, 
to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit. Well, Peter's going to exercise that one. He's going to heal this person. But we'll come back to Peter and his healing in a little bit. And so here he gives him, gives to Peter, a knowing faith, knowing what God is going to do, because we want to be careful. We don't want to say to someone, God is going to do this, and God is, well, how do you know that? Did God tell you this? Or are you, you know, assigning assignments to God, giving him assignments so that because you think they should be done? So we should be a little bit careful before we go ahead and start writing checks on God's account. Uh, the gifts, again, simply means God's provision for the moment. For instance, if you're being chased by a lion, do you want the gift of tongues? I mean, I don't know. I want the gift of speed. Or really, I just would like a hand grenade. So, you know, to look at the Bible uh, sensibly is very much important. We're going to come more to this as we open this section up. Arise, make your bed, he says to him in verse 34. Then he arose immediately. And Peter saw his master do this. The believer does not use God's power. God's power uses the believer. If it's not, you know, God's power is not like a, a tool on the wall that we get when we need it done, to get something done. It's the other way around. When God needs something to done, done with a tool, he gets us and we perform it. And I find that liberating. And I happen to like liberty. I like freedom. Paul said they came here to spy out our liberty. <laughs> James sent them up there to find out how if they're eating pork. And Paul knew it. And we didn't yield to them an hour because once you've had bacon, you're not giving it up. That's what Paul was, which really wasn't, but um, it would have been a fun conversation. Verse 35, so all who dwelt in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Smart people here. There were other smart people off doing other smart things. There were Roman engineers and uh, just philosophers and people, you know, astronomers. There were other smart people on the planet when this was taking place in this little place in Lydda. And here are the Christians engaging souls. Which is more important? Well, they're both important. We want engineers. We benefit from them. All sorts of engineers. Mechanical, structural, all sorts of them. Right now, we are really enjoying this HVAC, this, uh, this, this air conditioning. Well, because some A student got hold of it and did the right thing. Now, again, you can be an A student and be really stupid. By the way, I should remind you, speaking of A students, pray for your president. Pray for his health, that God, that God guards his health. Because if anything happens to that man, you know who we get. So, <clears throat> anyway, uh, that's more true than you care to find out in reality. So just pray for his health uh, and that he doesn't get reelected. Anyway, <laughs> listen, this is biblical. <laughs> There's a pastor that died and a politician. They, they died at the same time. They're both going to heaven. It's, it's, I, I'll find it in the Bible later. I'll have to write it on a piece of paper and stick it in there. But anyhow, so the angel says, uh, I'm going to take you to your quarters. It's going to be your, your abode while you, uh, now that you're in heaven. So he takes the pastor to this relatively humble dwelling. And it's sufficient. And he says, I'm so grateful. Thank you. This is nice. There's nothing special about it at all. He takes the politician to this palatial, this, this, this palace. It's got servants. It's got fountains and landscaping and marble. It's just incredible. And the politician says to the angel, I don't get it. That godly man gets this modest abode. Why do I get this palace? And the angel says, you don't understand. You're the first politician ever made it up here. It's <laughs> a Ronald Reagan joke. <laughs> anyway. All right. Back to the work at hand. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 speaking about Christians engaging souls while the world is doing their important things, we're doing more important things. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. So those engineers, those Roman engineers, when they all roads lead to Rome, they don't all lead to heaven. Only one way goes to heaven, and that is Jesus, right? The way, the truth, and the life. However... 
When those Romans were building all those roads, they did not know that God was using those civil engineers and structural engineers to make a path for the gospel to be taken throughout the world. The then the Roman Empire at that point. So we work together. We work together to some degree with what human beings are doing who don't know Christ. And we take advantage of it without being rude. And we use it for Christ because all knowledge comes from him and he owns it all anyway. Remembering that here in Lydda where Peter is working, as I said earlier, no New Testament Bible in those days. And... Uh, the emphasis is on the word. We can't just take, get people out of bed anymore, but we can preach to them in bed. In fact, if they're confined to bed, bedridden, it's harder for them to get away from us. <laughs> no, we don't want to do that ever. <laughs> but I thought it was kind of cute. Uh, unless you're bedridden, you say, that's not funny, and I'd be guilty. Verse 36, At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. Now, Peter, uh, of course, at Lydda, he heals the paralytic man. Many come to Christ who knew his story. Now they know the story of Christ. And now, away in Lydda, some miles away, ten miles away, thereabout, It's an important city at Joppa. At Joppa, uh, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, pardon me, which is translated Dorcas. From this verse through chapter 10 of the book of Acts, we have a contrast between Jonah and Peter. Because Jonah also went to Joppa to get away from taking the uh, truth to Gentiles. Well, Peter is going to be summoned by Gentiles to come up to Caesarea, where Philip is, and give them the gospel, and he is going to do that. There are plenty of ships still in Joppa. It's an important port city, and Peter doesn't run in the wrong direction. He goes in the right direction. This name, Tabitha, Aramaic for antelope or gazelle, Dorcas being the Greek rendering, This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. So she's a beloved, hardworking, serving woman in the church. And they're likely, many of the poor were benefiting from her making garments for them. The gift of helps is what she had. And it includes a heart given by God, the gift of helps, that not only sympathizes with those in need, but has the means and the know-how to take action. And this is what we see in this servant. She, this is what she could do. And so she did it. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, God has appointed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. After that, miracles, gifts of healing, helps, administration, administ- uh, administrations, uh, people who know how to handle the finances. You can't have someone who, you know, He still thinks 2 plus 2 is 9. You can't give that person the position of an administrator. But others are savvy enough. They can figure out the laws and work through it. This is a gift. It's something God gives to the church. And when when it is absent, uh, we ask for God to gift us with this. We need this, Lord. Verse 37, But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in in an upper room, Verse 38, and since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples had heard that Peter was there. They sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Well, the Jews don't embalm. And so the urgency, Peter, you've got to hurry up and get here. She's, she's dead, and we haven't buried her yet. And so Peter, without delay, he takes the 10-mile trip inland to, to Joppa. And... Uh, when it says they sent for Peter, of course, wouldn't you? I mean, if you were in this situation, you know Peter, the apostle Peter is in the next town. I'd send for him. And they sent for Peter because the Holy Spirit put it on their heart. Whether they knew it or not, it was God at work. God does not need us to recognize that he's using us. It's nice when that happens, but it, it's not essential. 
And we have many stories in the scripture of people being used by the Lord and really not conscious that he's using them. Uh, Verse 39, then Peter arose and went with him. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room and all the widows stood by weeping, showing the tunics, the garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. This is quite human is this story. Uh, God is not after Tabitha. He already has her. He's after the souls that know her. That's what God is after. And so uh, the widows, those who had dealt with the lethal touch of death, that's who they are. They, they knew this pain. And they're presenting her with the evidence of Tabitha's love. Uh, love that was in, uh, inspired by a full heart. And I ask myself when I read this, what will I leave behind? What sort of legacy? Uh, Here, this woman clearly left a lot of broken hearts. They wanted her back. Verse 40, but Peter put them all out, knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Now, I started this whole thing with why miracles have been de-emphasized. Because, you know, when we're in this situation, we want God to leave our loved ones with us. And he quite often does not. And uh, that's that's not, should be a, a surprise. Well, I'll get back to that a little bit. But putting everybody out of the room to perform this resuscitation, it's the third time. Elisha did it. Uh, the Lord Jesus did it, and now Peter is doing it, and he's he's sort of shutting the world out. Turning to the body, he said to Tabitha, arise. So this is is interesting here. I think it all is, but Peter, when he's praying, he's facing the Lord, not the dead body. Otherwise, why turn to the body? He he has to be facing away from it. Only Jesus in raising someone from the dead, spoke to the dead body. And that is because he is divine. We are not to speak to the dead. And so when you read about the prophets uh, or uh, uh, Peter or Paul raising the dead, we've been covering Elijah and Elisha raising the dead. They never spoke to the body. They spoke to the Lord. Uh, Peter's not going to address her until she's up. And it's significant, and I want to be uh, just as gentle as I can be without losing any of the firmness. Peter did not talk to the dead as those who pray to Mary do. When you talk to Mary, you're talking to the dead, and that is forbidden. Now, I don't point out the anti- and subscriptural practices of Roman Catholicism for sport. I do so to expose the unabashed sin. And that means it is very dangerous to share in the sins that uh, I am pointing out because the Bible says so. Roman Catholicism, by doing such things, deny Christ of his supremacy by creating co-equals. There's no co-equal with Christ except the Father and the Holy Spirit. That's it. And it is unpardonable because it disputes and it rejects the teaching of the Holy Spirit in Scripture in the name of Jesus. They do these wrong things in Jesus' name when Jesus has forbidden it. Well, a lot of them are just ignorant of this. Uh, The the higher-ups are not. Jesus Christ of the Bible is not the same Jesus Christ of Roman Catholic dogma. They are not the same person. You cannot say this Jesus is the Jesus of the Bible and he doesn't mind us praying to Mary. Christ disagrees with them. And I agree with Christ. He never approves of prayers to people. Mary or the saints... They are people. They were sinners. Christ was sinless. The only person in Scripture said to be sinless. That's a big thing. Now, let me give you an example how certain things are outstanding and cannot be bypassed. If Peter was 11 foot tall, 
Do you think they would have left that out of the scripture? No, it would have been like, you know, everybody would have been going to the chiropractor room because their neck would hurt from looking at Peter. It'd be a big deal. But he's not 11 foot tall, so it doesn't even merit. If Mary was sinless, it's such a big deal, the Bible would say it. The only person sinless, even unborn, the unborn are born in iniquity. Their codes are all in place to sin. And should they have lived their life, it's not possible that they would have sinned. It is guaranteed that they would sin. That is not the case with Christ. And when Christ has gone to the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, the lesson is he could not sin. He could not get tripped up to say, well, what if Jesus had sinned? He couldn't do it. That's the whole point. He is divine. He's unlike everybody else. And so the Jesus Christ of the Bible uh, never approves of these things. Why not have a seance then? Uh, why not approve seance if we can contact the dead? Well, these things, again, are forbidden. We're not to do these things. And if you don't care to hear this, I, I don't mean to be malicious, but then attend their church where they teach these things. But don't dare come to a church that opposes it and try to get us to conform uh, or ha expect me to chill. Uh, that would be just rude and impossible, Lord willing. So I close this section against Roman Catholic dogma. That which I mean, I'm not saying that there are not people in the Catholic Church that just don't know better. But there are those that do. Roman Catholicism cannot be fixed. It must be renounced. Uh, it must be abandoned. You can't, it's just so, but it, you don't, how do you do that? Well, you, you leave. You, you go with Christ. And um, that, that's it. And this would apply to others too, but mainly to them because they are certainly letting people think that this is Christianity. They represent Christianity. Uh, how many times you hear somebody say, I can't stand Christians because, and they'll tell you what the Roman Catholic Church does. You say, wait a minute, don't put me in that group because the nuns did that to you. They did none of that to me. So, uh, you know, it, just, it, it counts to clarify these things for people. Um, the, again, once again, for the record, the great difference between Roman Catholicism and Christianity is that Christianity believes in the Bible as the source of authority, the sole source of spiritual authority. Rome does not. They believe in the Pope and the cardinals and the bishops. That's their source, and that is where the divide comes in. So, now that we've clarified that, and those of you who have not been part of Roman Catholicism, you might, it might not be much, but those who have come out of it, it means a lot to them. I've met quite a few of them over the decades, and some of them are still pretty angry, and they should be. Personally, I have a chip on my shoulder, too, because the Lutherans that I had, a uh, church that was across from my house, they never told me the gospel. They could light candles. They could tell you who was sick in the hospital. They could sing hymns, but they couldn't give you the gospel. And I was pretty angry when I got saved. And I hope I retain an element of that indignation towards not giving the gospel according to the scriptures. Well, back to this, verse 41. Then he gave her his, gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Well, Christ did this very thing with Peter's mother-in-law years ago. Mark chapter 1, verse 31. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. Now, you can make jokes about that, of course. Christ heals us so she could fix lunch and things like that. And that was part of it. But on the real side of it, she couldn't wait to serve. She could not wait to thank him, to go into, I feel great. Um, I'm, in fact, you've got to be hungry, and you're going to get something to eat. Just sit right there. I'm going to fix it. And that kind of spirit is love. And that is really what was taking place. Uh, so one other thing, remember, everyone raised from the dead returns to suffer death again. And, and so God knows what he's doing as, as much as it is our enemy. And it is. It is the last enemy, the Bible says. But we have to do something with this life. And that should keep us pretty busy. Verse 42 and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord.
Well, this surpassed the healing of the bedridden man. Where, uh, of course, people came to the Lord there in verse 32. This, uh, this was incredible. Yet, I said I'd return to this healing matter with Peter. Peter was not able to revive Stephen. He won't be able to revive James. See, the gifts do not belong to us. They belong to God. Gifts, uh, we can only use them as God allows. He is Lord. He is Master. Verse 43. So it was that they stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. Well, because there's a lot of work to do there now. He started on this trip. He knows there's activity. People are coming to Christ. He goes up there as an apostle to teach and to make sure there's no more Simon, the magicians roaming around. I'm sure that was a part of it. But in harmony with the other believers, not, not oh, I've got to watch that Philip. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's gullible. There's nothing like that. He stays here. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> he stays here so he can do the work. It's not enough to convert somebody to Christianity. They must be discipled. And there are many ways that can happen. A person can disciple, be discipled just by rubbing elbows with people who are more mature in the faith. This offends the pride of some. If you are a believer uh, and you have people in the faith that are ahead of you, be a sponge with them. Absorb as much as you can. Uh, just take it in. Let that be your, your, your seminary, your education in, in the spirit, a part of it. Matthew, this is something Jesus taught us. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. There's a difference between a disciple and a convert. You have to be a convert to be a disciple. But it's not enough to be a convert. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things as I've commanded you. So there's the emphasis on what you believe and not what you perform by the way of miracles. And I, well, now coming back to this Simon the Tanner. <laughs> I disagree with the many good Bible commentators. I'm, I say that more and more. I, by the time I'm 95, I'll be disagreeing with all of them <laughs> at this rate. But anyway... They, they say, well, the tan tanners were unclean and the Jews, you know, you couldn't touch a dead body. Well, then how'd you cook meat? Um, I don't agree with many of the commentators who, who casts Simon the Tanner. I mean, he's, he holds a lot of cards in the village. You get on his nerves, you make your own shoes. Because, um, you know, they were all leather. I mean, you know, he carried a lot of clout. Granted, the dyes and the chemicals, I mean, it is said that they used dog dung to get the hairs off the leather, scrubbing it. That's a bad job. Uh, uh, so, yeah, maybe not the highest work around, but, but they, they got the job done. Dog on it. <laughs> so, yeah, corny jokes are safe. Uh, anyway, uh, so what? They work with dead animals. The prohibitions came on animals that were unclean or died of natural causes. If you touched those animals, then ceremonially you were unclean. But you weren't a leper or treated like that. You just had to, you know, go through the certain waiting time and ritual before you could, could be ceremonially clean. So this, this is a noble profession. There are some writings of rabbis that disdain them. I'm sure they did. Uh, you know, the city slicker type they wouldn't get it. They may have cast the tanners in a bad light. But overall... Um, these were not bad people. They were hardworking people. Peter is very comfortable. It, this Simon, Simon could have been retired. Uh, he could have had his shop elsewhere uh, because of the, the odors um, that, that would come from their, uh, with the, their trade. Anyway, all of this is preparing Peter to take the gospel to Caesarea where Philip is and the Gentiles will now by when we get to chapter 10. Before the Gentiles that were saved were already proselytes. They had come into Judaism. Well, what is now coming is a Gentile that had not come into Judaism, and that will complete uh, the Jew, the mixed Jew and the Samaritan, and then the Gentile. So God at work. All of this to make us say, what am I supposed to do with this information, Lord? I've got all these problems in my life. I come to church. The Bible is taught. Why? 
what am I supposed to do with this information? Well, it's for God to know and for you to find out. Apply yourselves and uh, let the Lord work in you. Well, let's uh, pray. I see we've got some time left, so let's do another chapter. (laughs) Let's pray. Our Father, such pages that are in the Bible like this that on the surface seem to not offer much for us as servants, and yet they're loaded with information. They're loaded with real-life stories, with people who are suffering and struggling just like us, and yet still the demand is front and it is centered, the demand to preach Christ, to adhere to the faith, May you find we who believe doing just these things, persevering, enduring, enjoying our victories, and working through those things that would tear us apart. And then there are those that have never opened their heart to you, still lost in their sins. If you've been listening and you know that God is working in your heart and calling you. You have to make contact with him. You have to acknowledge. You have to accept, receive him, open your heart to him. Why would you not do that? If you would like Jesus Christ to be your Lord and your Savior, and by that, when you die, and you will die one day, you have your sins pardoned washed away because of what Jesus has done. And by faith, by trust in him, you benefit from his salvation and you enter heaven forever. If you'd like that, then you've got to make it known with your mouth. You say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've broken your laws and your commandments. I've gone against your will. And I ask you to forgive me. I thank you for dying in my place and taking my punishment. And I ask you from this day forward to receive me, to be your own forever, that you would be master of my life, savior of my soul. And I give my soul and my life to you right here, right now. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, may they not be ashamed of it, quite quite the opposite. May they enjoy it. Be eager to let it be known. And these things we commit to you in Jesus' name. Amen.